Now you understand. All right. Now, on with the program. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you for joining us for our February session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Collaboration Between the Pain Management Clinic and the Matthews Fuller Health Sciences Library at DHMC, a model to improve patient access to educational resources. And I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing this session online. The learning outcome for today's session is at the conclusion of this presentation, the learner will be able to identify resources for patient education at the Matthews Fuller Health Sciences Library um, in order to offer this as an option to patients when appropriate. You must attend 80% of this program to receive credit, and this educational activity carries one contact hour. None of our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any financial interest regarding um, this activity and no one refused to disclose. For those viewing online, I'll be monitoring my email, so if you have any questions, you can email me and I will relay them to the speakers. My email is judith.m as in may, dot langhands at hitchcock.org. We are delighted to have Susan DeStacio and Heather Johnson with us today to share with us how the DH Pain Clinic collaborated with the library staff to improve patient education resources and how this example of collaboration can be extended into other clinical specialty areas. Thank you. So I'm Susan DeStacio and um, I'm a nurse practitioner. Most of my career has been in oncology nursing. However, I spent the last three years in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, chronic pain clinic uh, caring for patients. And before we start, I'm wondering how many people here have used the Matthew Fuller Library? Okay, so most people have used it. Um, how many were aware prior to this uh, meeting today that patients and families could use that library? So less. And how many people have actually sent a patient or family member to the library to look at a, a particular reference? So even less. So we're hoping today to provide you with some information about how the library can be a resource for patient education. And I want to give you a little bit, um, before we start, I just want to give you some be upfront about this is, was not a quality improvement or a research project. This started as an idea, and then it sort of blossomed and grew from there. And in retrospect, looking back, it would have been a stronger presentation if we had done it as a quality improvement or as a project. So just to give you some background, chronic pain, is the number one cause of long-term disability in the United States. Approximately 25 million American adults report chronic daily pain. Predominantly, it's muscle skeletal, arthritis, rheumatism, back, neck, or headaches. And it costs between 500 and 600 billion dollars a year in this country. And that's loss of wages, disability, healthcare expenses. And treating chronic pain can be challenging. Anyone who has dealt with someone with chronic non-cancer pain knows this. For many years, we were told that chronic pain was best treated with opioid therapy. We were told um, this, this was safer than non-steroid anti-inflammatories. You don't have to worry about renal function or high blood pressure or GI bleeding. You don't have to worry about addiction, 
the statistic was less than 1% of patients using opioids would become addicted. And so that was the mainstay of our treatment. And I had many patients in the pain clinic who, would, who had been on opioids for 20, 30 plus years. And they were told at some point, opioids are the only option for your pain management and you will be on these the rest of your life. There are no other options. But as we know now, there is a significant risk associated with using long-term opioid therapy for non-cancer pain. And that the studies are showing that long-term opioid therapy does not improve quality of life or disability. Um, and uh, when we think about risks, we think about um, some of the information that's come out from the Center for Disease Control that the sale of prescription opioids has quadrupled from 1999 to 2016. Overdose deaths from prescribed opioids were five times higher in 2016 than 1999. And during this time period, over 200,000 people in the United States died from an overdose related to prescription opioids. So we're talking about prescription opioids, not heroin. And so we're talking about methadone, oxycontin, and hydrocodone. Um, and uh, what we know from some of the data and from surveys is that people get these from family, friends, or buy them off the street. So the person who gets a prescription for 90 Percocet when they leave the hospital after a minor procedure, they only use 10 and they have all the leftover sitting in their medicine cabinet. Somebody in the family has pain and tries it or they live in poverty and uh, Percocet's um, you know, $30 a pill on the street and they can sell them uh, to help buy groceries. Or uh, what happens a lot is somebody in their family has pain and they feel bad and they offer their pain medication to them. And I had a number of patients in the pain clinic who admitted that they took methadone regularly from family or friends. And as, pro as providers, we're generally pretty nervous about prescribing methadone. We know how risky it is, has a long half-life, it affects the QT interval and heart function, and yet people would just randomly take it because they know it's a pain medication. So in response to this, the CDC released opioid prescribing guidelines in 2016, and many states have followed uh, suit, including New Hampshire and Vermont. And these guidelines emphasize non-opioid methods to manage chronic pain. They don't say you can't use opioids, but what they say is that try non-opioid therapies first. If you need to use opioids, use the lowest dose possible for the shortest amount of time. And two therapies that are evidence-based as non-opioid therapies for pain include cognitive behavioral therapy, and mindfulness-based interventions such as relaxation techniques. These encourage active patient participation, address the effects of pain in the patient's life, and can result in sustained improvements in pain and function. Just briefly, cognitive behavioral therapy includes techniques like cognitive restructuring, relaxation, meditation, goal activity pacing, value clarification, communication skills, it addresses depression, fear avoidance, and sleep disorders, all which contribute to chronic pain. 
Cognitive behavioral therapy addresses catastrophizing. So this is pretty common in chronic pain, where people magnify the threat of the pain, where they ruminate about their pain and they perceive the inability to cope with it. So that's when you hear the person say, oh, have you seen my MRI? I'm gonna be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 38. Or I can't do pool therapy, it's gonna make my pain worse and then I'll pay for it and I'll spend the next three days in bed. Cognitive behavioral therapy is considered the first line psychosocial treatment for pain management. And then mindfulness, which is a set of techniques to encourage detached observation from one moment to the next. So this is really living in the moment. And this is um, widely studied. Uh, the most common version of this was is the mindfulness stress-based, um, sorry, mindfulness-based stress reduction that came out of uh, UMass uh, um, Amherst, uh, Worcester, UMass Worcester with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn. He's done about 20 years on mindfulness and chronic pain management. So both of these therapies can be done with an individual counselor or in a group setting. Uh, recent, I recently attended a pain conference in Boston last year. It was sponsored by Harvard and it included all the uh, Boston hospitals. It was five days. And I would say most of the sessions were on mindfulness and on cognitive behavioral therapy. And we're fortunate enough here, we offer these therapies to our patients. We have Dr. Jan Seville, who is a psychologist who specializes in CBT for pain management. Uh, we also have, there are health coaches in the primary care uh, department here who offer at least once or twice a year a group program based on cognitive behavioral principles. So this sounds great. So all our patients should be using it, right? Well, there are barriers to this. And I started to see this um, in the patients that I was caring for in the pain clinics. And the data uh, and research shows that these therapies are, are really underutilized. And the Institute of Medicine had a report in 2011 that identified financial reasons, lack of insurance coverage for seeing the psychologist, co-pays. I found that when I would recommend a workbook or an audio CD, many of my patients could not afford it. When you think of chronic pain and the rate of disability and people who are disabled, low income. Environmental, lack of transportation. So in the pain clinic, we see patients from the border of Canada to I saw patients from New York, from Vermont border to Massachusetts over to Maine. So the idea that for them to travel here to a group setting would be extremely difficult or even sometimes to go to a, a counselor in their area. Also, uh, lack of availability of providers. There are very, very few psychologists or mental health providers that specialize in pain management. And we found that over and over again. We would try to find somebody locally to help them with cognitive behavioral therapy. And either there were very months to a year long waiting period, or their insurance wouldn't cover it, or there just was no one available to provide that service. And then patient attitude. There is sometimes a stigma associated with psychological care. And I heard this frequently. I don't want it on my record that I went to see a psychologist. 
especially if they were in a workman's compensation or a disability environment because they were afraid that if they saw a psychologist for help with their pain management, that somehow that implied that they were psychologically responsible for their pain and then they would be denied disability or workman's comp. And then competing life priorities. Um, so many of our patients also are dealing with other chronic uh, health issues, spouses with chronic health issues, caring for grandchildren, uh, just trying to take care of their everyday life sometimes was really all time consuming for them to be able to do their laundry and pace out their grocery shopping and clean their house was just all that they could bear to do, never mind attend a group or go to another appointment. So I began to think about, well, how can we help our patients and overcome some of these barriers? And there's been a lot of research recently about how to, um, how to overcome these barriers. And they are looking at approaches that favor not having to contact a healthcare provider or be in touch with a healthcare provider, so more self-help. And this includes online programs, self-help workbooks, self-taught methods, or support groups that are run by um, lay people. So I started to think about our patients in the clinic and, uh, and think about learning. And on average, people forget 50% of what a provider tells them by the time they leave the office. So even if I give them some instruction in the office, they usually forget half of what we've talked about. And, and in general, people retain 20% what they hear. And this increases to 50% with visual and audio input. Uh, I'm sorry, visual and written input. And I looked at, we saw almost 5,800 patients in the Dartmouth Pain Clinic during 2017. And over 90% of them listed reading when they were asked their preference to learn new information or concepts. So that did tell me they were interested in reading. And I thought, well, what about online? Although I knew many of my patients told me that they live in very rural places and they have very slow internet access or they do not have a computer or they only have a smartphone and they find it difficult to read on a smartphone. But I looked at, um, out of our 5,800 patients, how many of them had active MyDH accounts and only 57% of them had an active account. And I looked at how many preferred uh, their method of contact to be through my DH, and only 44% had that. Most of them were asking for contact through telephone. So that gave me a little bit of a hint that probably about half of our patients were not regularly using a computer. So I decided to think about um, setting up a lending library of audio uh, resources and books for our patients. So I requested a grant through the DH gift shop. Uh, every year they call for a funding uh, grant. So I submitted a grant and was awarded $1,000 to purchase some items and purchase 50 items. There were 13 unique titles. And it was a variety of formats, CD, workbooks, and traditional books. And the titles came from recommendations from uh, the pain providers in the clinic and the psychologists. 
So we had been recommending books to patients over time, uh, and we would get feedback. You know, I don't like that. It was hard to read. It was too long. It didn't make any sense to me. So we kind of had an idea of what types of things people like to look at. And for some of the examples, we recommended the Opioid Free Pain Relief Toolkit by Beth Darnell. She's a pain psychologist out of Stanford. She's written a couple of books. She does a lot on chronic pain management and CBD, CBT. Uh, she does a lot of blogging. It's a very small, um, I kind of tell people it's kind of a down and dirty book, like here are the steps to help you with your chronic pain management. Another book is Managing Pain Before It Manages You by Margaret Caudel-Slossberg. Uh, Dr. Uh, Caudel-Slossberg has been a pain physician at Dartmouth for many years, as well as in Boston in the Concord area. Her book is on the fourth edition. Uh, I explain this to patients, that if you really want to read and get in depth and understand more about each one of the principles in cognitive behavioral therapy, this is a good book to utilize. In fact, when I was at a pain conference in Texas two years ago, they were talking about this issue of how do you get cognitive behavioral therapy to people when there's a lack of people, uh, counselors who specialize in it. And someone from Chicago put up Dr. Caudel Salzberg's book saying, this is a great resource. And so I texted her and let her know. Um, another book is Living a Healthy Life with Chronic Pain. I believe this is the one they use in the primary care coaches use here in the program. And then we had some CDs, uh, Meditation to Ease Pain, Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief. So these are just a few of the titles. I also included some titles on uh, sleep management, insomnia, because that's a big problem, and stress management, relaxation techniques for stress management. So after obtaining these, the next step was, so how are we going to implement this? And I thought one idea was to advertise through flyers in the exam rooms uh, and that it would be open to all patients and families at DH. Um, another way would be to have a direct recommendation from the provider, uh, what we call a prescription for information. Um, and this is gaining more traction, the idea that you actually give patients a prescription and you say, you know, these are the resources that I recommend. Uh, because what you're saying is this is just as important as the medication I'm prescribing for you. This is part of your plan. And in the pain clinic, we often worked with people on setting goals, functional goals. So mutually, we may decide that they agree to obtain one of these workbooks and read the first chapter before the next visit. And then we would follow up on what they learned in that chapter. Or we may agree that they would obtain a relaxation CD and listen to it at least once a day. And then we would talk about it at the next visit. We did have a luxury of seeing our patients who we were prescribing opioids to every 28 days. So we could really continue to follow through with goals and with um, at readjusting goals with them. So this all sounded great, but then suddenly I was hit with, how am I gonna manage this? I have all these, you know, I have 50 books and CDs. How am I gonna manage the lending process? Where are we gonna store them? You know, certainly in our clinic, we didn't have room to store them. Who's gonna manage the lending? There's no, you know, no way nursing has time to do that. The LNAs don't, the providers don't. How are we gonna manage this? And 
amazingly, I received an email from Heather saying the library had some resources our patients might be interested in. And I was surprised. I did not know that patients could use the Matthews Fuller Library. So I contacted Heather, um, and we got together to talk about the implementation of actually how to manage this library. So I'm going to turn this over to Heather now on the library's part. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, so I'm Heather Johnson. I'm a librarian at the Matthews Fiddler Library. If you haven't been up there yet, it's on the fifth floor right above the main rotunda. Um, we have two libraries. One is on campus by the med school and the other is here at the hospital in case you're interested as to why we're called the biomedical libraries with an IES instead of a Y. Um, so I want to first talk to you about um, collaboration. So first and foremost, our library is open to everybody. That includes clinicians, students, staff, and, and patients. Um, so we have a collection of about 800 to 1,000 books. I've done some weeding and haven't gotten the exact count recently. Um, these books are written for a lay audience. So that is primarily people outside of the healthcare field. And this collection includes items related to caring for a loved one with dementia, general nutrition, and everything in between, including pain management. Um, our collection is very broad, so our collection of pain management materials was pretty small, um, thus the impetus for this collaboration, so that we now have 50 books on this topic rather than the five or six that we had had previously. So from this collection, patients, and anybody for that matter, can borrow up to two books at a time, generally for two weeks. Um, in the case of the pain management resource library, patients borrow these books for 28 days so that they don't have to come back to the hospital before their next appointment. That could be pretty inconvenient if somebody's traveling an hour, two hours to get here for their appointment. So we wanted to make that process of bringing their materials back as easy as possible. And you also wanted to give them enough time to read the books and to meet their goals. Um, so in addition to lending out books, we also help patients to find online information. Sometimes a patient will come in and say, I've got this diagnosis, this treatment is something I'm interested in, can you find me information? We're happy to do that. Sometimes we get inpatients who call us and want us to bring down information, and we're happy to do that as well. And sometimes we get a patient who wants to learn how to find the information on their own. So um, we're pretty aware that patients like to Google things, and it's pretty easy to get carried away and um, find your way toward sources that are not so reputable and sources that can be sometimes pretty scary. Um, that includes chat forums, Facebook groups, where the information you're getting is pretty personal to the original poster and doesn't necessarily extend to that um, individual's situation. So we can help them identify good sources or provide them with information about how to um, verify that the sources that they have found are good or not. Um, so in addition to working with our typical user base, um, that is you in this room and also patients, um, we also work with a number of departments. Um, the first program I'll mention is the bariatric surgery program. So we attend orientations. They have monthly orientations every, um, I think every third or fourth Friday of the month. So we attend those orientations and let patients know that they should be coming up to us 
um, if they have information needs, we will never um, give them, we will never make a treatment recommendation, but we will provide them the resources so that they can help to open up that conversation with their provider. That is our goal. Um, we also attend shared medical appointments as our schedules allow. Um, that's been a, a slow relationship to start in terms of attending their shared medical appointments because they are so frequent. Um, but we have attended in the past, and at those appointments, we just, again, let the patients know that we have resources, we're there for them, and that they're welcome to use our library to find information, take their, they have to take quizzes, um, and that's actually been a pretty successful collaboration. We've been working with them for about a year, and it's only been recently that we've started to see patients, and I think it's that it can actually take a while for a patient to begin the program from the time of their orientation. So we're pretty proud of that. We also work with the Aging Resource Center, and we provide semi-annual workshops that show patients how to find reputable information online, and those are really great uh, workshops. You're usually held in a roundtable setting where we discuss different resources. Um, they ask questions. We talk about um, how to appraise a website to figure out whether or not it is something they should be looking at. And then I give them a challenge at the end to, um, I give them a, a question and they'll tell me where they would look to find the information. And they generally do a really great job. And finally, the Pain Management Center. So we have a collection of books for those patients and we assist them with finding additional literature um, on the topic of pain management or other topics. So as I mentioned, we have this collection of several hundred books and um, of those 800 books, since last March, we've circulated about 100. In that same time period, those 50 books that the Pain Management Center has housed in our library, about 60 of them have circulated. So that's a that's pretty big circulation when you compare the size of the two collections. Um, so because patients can check out two books at a time, but they can check out just one book if they wanted to, um, I'm going to base this next assumption on the fact that every patient is checking out two books. Um, I can assume that we saw about 29 patients that we probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, so while I don't have any data to actually confirm this assumption, um, we actually we don't keep track of who's checking out materials to maintain their confidentiality. Um, I do assume that we hadn't, wouldn't have seen these patients if they hadn't been prescribed information. And when patients come to the library, they have to talk to a staff member to get that to get those books. And we'll generally ask, do you have other information needs? Sometimes they'll decline, and sometimes they'll say, yeah, I've got diabetes. What do you have on diabetes, for example? And we're happy to um, provide information on any comorbidities that they're experiencing. And even if they say, no, I don't have any other questions or I don't have any other information needs, that's the relationship that we've then built so that they can think of us the next time that something does come up. So I'd like to share a case study, and Susan shared this with me, and I really love this story because it shows the impact of this lending library. Um, I'm going to try not to look at my paper. It's a pretty long story. Um, so Mrs. Smith, I've changed her name to protect her identity, is a 72-year-old woman who presented to the pain management clinic for a follow-up for chronic low back pain with right leg neuropathic pain. 
Her medical history includes several lumbar surgeries, and her most recent evaluation showed a collapsing lumbar fusion causing significant pain. Since there were no surgical options to control this pain, her provider added opioid therapy, opioid therapy to her non-opioid pain, non-opioid medication regimen. This was problematic because Mrs. Smith was at high risk for substance abuse, and because the opioids made her drowsy, she was not able to drive to her AA meetings. So it was recommended that Mrs. Smith pursue cognitive behavioral therapy for pain management, but her mental health counselor had not, was not familiar with CBT for pain management. Um, Mrs. Smith had a very limited income because of her disability and could not afford to explore alternative options for seeking this type of treatment. So at the recommendation of the nurse practitioner at the pain management clinic, Mrs. Smith visited the library upstairs and borrowed a self-help workbook on pain management as well as an audio CD on relaxation techniques related to pain management. Um, at, at Mrs. Smith's next counseling session, she was excited to share the pain management techniques that she had learned from the workbook and noted that she was listening to the relaxation CD twice a day. Um, over the course of the next several months, she returned to the library to borrow different books and CDs from the pain management resource library. As Mrs. Smith continued to share what she was learning, her counselor built on that progress and offered additional strategies for relaxation for pain management. Um, Mrs. Smith became adept at managing her pain through relaxation, and the nurse practitioner at the pain management center was slowly able to decrease her dose of opioids until Mrs. Smith was able to discontinue opioid therapy altogether, and she noted that she felt more in control of her pain. So I just want to chat for a moment about how this model is transferable. So I understand that not every department would be able to buy a collection of books, and it also may not be possible for the library to manage an additional 50 books from 10 different libraries with all these different lending models. So we'll just start with the easy one. Um, a department can purchase their items with their own budget and house them at the library. But talk to us first about that. We might be able to come to an arrangement where you purchase the books and we have joint ownership. Um, it, but if you're interested in doing something like that, please talk to us so that we don't just have 50 books arrive and have to figure out how to manage them later on. Um, the library can also develop a list of items that we have related to a specific concern. That's probably the easiest thing to do. So if you know that you work with um, patients with migraines, we can give you a list of books that we have on migraines and you can share that with your patients and you can prescribe them to them as Susan had mentioned. Um, we're also happy to consider um, book item requests and purchase them as our budget allows. So if you have a really great book or CD that you share with patients, let us know. We're happy to consider that request and incorporate it into our collection. Um, and beyond building a collection specific to your department, just know that we're here to help. Um, encourage your patients to visit us or contact us. Um, just the other day, I had a patient from who's admitted call and say, I've been in bed for three days. I don't really know what's going on. There's something written on the board, but I don't know what it is. Um, we are your partners in helping to provide um, good care. So 
have them contact us. You can contact us yourself if you want. We're happy to bring the information down to the tower. Or if you have a family member who's seeking information, send them up to you. We also had a patient or the spouse of a patient last week call and say, I, my, my husband is in the ICU and I need to know everything there is to know about stroke. So can you help me find materials? So we did, we pulled some books, she came in and I think she had additional questions that we were also able to answer using information resources. So just remember, we are here to help you. We're here to help your patients. So don't hesitate to use us. We're here to help. So I'd like to open the floor to questions and discussion.